Hi, I'm Jeff Miller. I'm Anthony Navarro, and welcome to Talk Out Loud, where we share the LGBTQIA narrative one story at a time. On this episode of Talk Out Loud, we're here with Seven Graham. Seven is a British intersex activist, comedian, filmmaker, playwright, and drug addiction counselor. At a young age, Seven had an operation that was supposed to save their life, only to find out years later that the procedure actually was harmful to their body. Discovering that they were an intersex person, Seven has now taken their pain and turned it into gold, helping expand care, visibility, and understanding for intersex people. Let's hear Seven's story. Seven, we are so happy to have you here with us. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And Anthony. Yeah. <laughs> this is your first time meeting Seven. I know. I'm so excited. Jeff has said nothing but amazing things about you and also just really great things about the conversations that you've had in the past and sort of jealous that I didn't get to go to those coffee shops with puppies. <laughs> so. Well, it's lovely to be here and meet all of your puppies. Scotty, my beagle, is going to be so jealous when he discovers that I've been hanging out with this posse. <laughs> we can do a puppy party sometime. Yes. So, Seven, you have such a diverse, beautiful story and also some 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 times of, of trial like we all had in our lives. I've heard you speak a couple times and your authenticity has been something that, first of all, has made me feel comfortable to learn and ask questions with you. And then also been really attracted to just, just who you are as a person as well with that. Can we talk, talk about, I mean, you've got this beautiful accent. I just probably should acknowledge, where, where, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Um, I grew up in an area of England called Wiltshire, which is famous uh, for two things, sheep, there's lots of sheep, <laughs> and uh, Stonehenge. Stonehenge is the thing that you might have heard of. Um, so it's an area of rural countryside, a little bit like the Midwest, politically quite like the Midwest. Yeah, they would probably say that we have the accents if I were to go there today. Well, <laughs> yes. Um, I, w- I could try an American accent, but I think you'd not like it very much. So you, you grew up in, in England. And what was, you know, childhood, uh, what was that like? Um, in many ways, very happy. I grew up in a, a family with a strong matriarchy. I had a wonderful mother, grandmother, great-grandmother who were all very powerful, uh, very inspiring figures in their own ways. Uh, very strong father as well. My father was um, a policeman and, and then um, salesman and then an artist. He, uh, he's, he, he was a talented um, painter, very creative, um, but quite a complex human being, obviously a kind of quite a strange mixture of things. I certainly got my, um, my stand-up comedy uh, gene from him. Uh, he used to think he was very funny and <laughs> do impromptu stand-up and improv on the streets. Now looking back on it, I think I probably would find it hilarious, but as a child, it was mortifying some of the stuff that he got up to. But definitely that kind of uh, gave me that aspect of my personality, I think. I was uh, naturally rebellious from an early age. I've always been one of those people who's kind of questioned things and challenged things and uh, not accepted things just at face value. Um, And that is a good and a bad quality to have, I think. Um, I'll give you an example. I was um, kicked out of the brownies, which is like the kind of junior scouts, when I was eight years old for refusing to swear allegiance to the Queen. (laughs) My mother was not happy. She'd just bought the entire uniform. And uh, (laughs) so, so, so that was the kind of child I was. I've subsequently reappraised my thoughts about the monarchy and I'm now actually a huge fan of Her Majesty. Mm-hmm. And I, one of my five-year, maybe 10-year goals, actually, hopefully five years, so the Queen will still be alive, is I'd love to be the first non-binary peer in the British House of Lords. I know a few people in the House of Lords, so I am behind the scenes kind of working to, yeah. to, to make that happen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a big goal to have. So are uh- you mentioned non, non-binary. Mm. Have you known your whole life that you're non-binary? No, <laughs> I didn't. Um, I didn't know that I was anything other than a cis woman um, until I was uh, in my twenties. Um, that means that when I was um, diagnosed uh, as a child, my I saw the world eminent gynaecologist, a gentleman called Sir John Professor Dewhurst, who was the nearest to God in a white coat that you could hope to meet. Um, he was enormously respected. Uh, He always had an army of medical students in tow. And when he diagnosed that there was something wrong with me, what 
he said to my parents was that I had cancerous ovaries, which had to be removed straight away when I was eight. So that was the story I was told. And so I believed that I was a, quote, normal girl slash woman uh, until I was 24 when a gynecologist finally disclosed to me that that was a lie, that I didn't have cancerous ovaries. I, in fact, had healthy internal testes as well as XY chromosomes. And I am biologically a mix of both sexes. Um, We call it intersex now. The old word that people may be more familiar with is hermaphrodite. Uh, I'm reclaiming the word hermaphrodite uh, along with some other uh, intersex advocates. I think it's actually quite a beautiful word, but it's not entirely biologically accurate. So some people prefer the more scientific intersex as the word that they use. Um, Just to pause for a second. So a a female that normally has... And what is normal? I mean, honestly. Uh, the common female. The common female. Thank you. And I said, I'm going to make some mistakes here. So mm, don't worry, I will too. It's, uh, com- it's complicated and I don't understand it all. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And anytime, please feel free to, to that's why we're here, is to, to help me, help us with this process. A common cisgendered female mm-hmm. has two X chromosomes? Uh, yes, double X chromosomes. Double X chromosomes. Yes. And then, and we didn't, didn't ask you here for science, but a male, a common male has an X Y chromosome. chromosome. Yes. When you were 24 years old, Mm -hmm. you you have this uh, diagnosis. And so at the age of eight years old with this doctor, you had surgery. Yes. And you were told at that time that there was due to, as far as like the cancerous ovaries. Yes. Then at the age of 24, you get this, I mean, what was that like? Well, first off, that story, which is actually quite a common story that they, they quite a common lie, was enormously destructive to my mental well-being because as far as my parents and I were concerned, I dodged the bullet of cancer. And so that kind of in- introduced the idea that the Grim, Re- Grim Reaper was stalking me and I kind of had this sense that I should have died as a teenager. So that was a very destructive story uh, for me and it meant that I've had a lot of anxiety about medical things from that Trust point so. on. Yes, and thought that I should have died as a teenager and it kind of very much fueled my addiction in terms of thinking that, you know, I'd outstayed my kind of welcome on earth, you know, because the doctor made it very clear, you're very, very lucky we've diagnosed this. It doesn't often get diagnosed, you're incredibly rare, um, but we're going to get these ovaries out and you're going to be fine. Almost manipulative. Yes, it was. Yeah. So that story in itself was damaging. But then when I was 24, as you say, and I found out the truth, there was huge betrayal because I'd loved my doctor and I thought he was my saviour. And he'd actually lied to me and my parents. My parents didn't give informed consent for that surgery because he'd lied to them about what was going on. And then to discover that the tissue that they took out of me was actually perfectly healthy um, testes, internal testes, which would have produced hormones naturally and I would have been perfectly fine. Um, The chance of those internal testes becoming cancerous is uh, around the same as the chance of a girl's breast becoming cancerous. So Mm. automatically removing them would be like removing all teenage girls' breasts because one day they might get breast cancer. Of course, we wouldn't do that. That's a horrendous proposition. And because they did that surgery on me, um, I was put on estrogen replacement therapy when I was 12 years old. They had no scientific evidence base of how safe or unsafe that was. So at various points in my life, I've had to face the fear of having breast cancer. You know, I've had to have a lot of, you know, bone density scans because um, they, they put me at risk of having bone density problems. I've got friends in their 30s who have osteoporosis as a consequence of the same surgery. And then as it transpired, when I was in my 40s, in my late 40s, my body completely rejected estrogen and I started becoming physically disabled. I thought I was going to end up in a wheelchair because my body basically was washing the estrogen out of my system. And it took me six months to go to the doctors because I had such fear of medical environments and doctors. I finally made it to the LA LGBT Centre and they did blood tests and everything and found out that I had the hormone profile of somebody in their kind of latter years, you know, um, and they said to me, why don't we try you on testosterone because that's what your body would have made. Mm. Within days of that first testosterone shot, I suddenly felt like I was finally running on the right fuel and that it made me realise that my whole life I'd been being kind of 
given the wrong the wrong hormone and it had made me you know all my life I've carried I struggled my weight I'd carried excess weight all my life I'd been struggled with depression and anxiety and lots of symptoms which are symptoms of you know not having the right hormones Mm. you said you know being sentenced to a wheelchair at the age of 41, seeing you today, I mean, you, you rode your bicycle today. I, mean, I know, you, you within, within weeks of going on testosterone, my body started repairing itself. I'd gone from not being able to walk very far because my, my Hercules heels were packing up mm. and having to take painkillers every day to manage the pain. I'm now completely physically well. I cycle everywhere. You I, hike. I, yeah. I've got three skateboards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hike every day with the dog. So yes, that was the problem. So is this... A- a common story that you hear from other people who are intersex? Yes. Basically, intersex people are much more common than you would imagine. Most people think, oh, I don't know somebody intersex. It's actually as common as red hair and green eyes. About mm-hmm. one in 1,500 births is an intersex person. And basically, they decided in the 70s, um, well, actually, let's rewind. The Nazis were the first people who, when they saw um, those intersex people who have ambiguous genitalia uh, or obviously physically didn't fit into a male or female box, the Nazis were the first people to start experimenting with surgery to correct, as they call it, this. And then doctors subsequently from the Nazis on developed their surgery techniques and they used us as kind of experiments. There's a saying in surgery, which is it's easier to make a hole than a pole. So most intersex babies emerge from the operation theatre as girls rather than boys but for me you know the possibility of being intersex isn't even on the table because there's this idea that God made Adam and Eve and a complete denial that actually in nature in the animal kingdom and in humans it's you know intersex has always existed and um, although we are often infertile, we often have other gifts that we come with. Yeah. You know, above average, if not very, in, very high intelligence is one of the side effects of my particular intersex condition. I'm reasonably bright today and I lost 10 IQ points in my addiction. So, you know, I used to be super bright um, prior, to, yeah. <laughs> prior to using so, so Which much is alcohol and drugs in my teens and 20s. Which is interesting as we talk about, uh, you know, with the brownies, like your your perception of pledging allegiance to the queen at that age, like, what, what, how often does an eight-year-old, you know, ask that question, you know? You know, to my father's horror and chagrin, I was subscribing to left-wing journals in my early teens, having them delivered through the door. He was the, the equivalent of a Republican. So he, this kind of demon child was having this kind of left-wing propaganda delivered to the house, you know, at 13 when other people are reading kind of Jackie magazine or whatever. I was wanting to discover, you know, kind of political theory and um, investigating kind of uh, the economic superstructure and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I was I was a bit of a bit of a freaky child. Yeah. The the more and more that that I gotten to know more people and had conversations like this, uh, the more I realized is like that that we all have a place in this in this world and what we all can accomplish together. It, it kind of reminds me of of uh, like like a, like a Marvel Universe movie where Absolutely. you know where we have all of these wonderful powers and if we can all come together what we can accomplish like a dream team you know yeah well I mean these days you know through being in recovery eighteen plus years I work a spiritual program of recovery I believe in God I call my God. Um, other things other than God usually, but, you know, I'm comfortable with the word God. And and I see that, you know, creation is enormously complex and diverse and that's what makes the world so beautiful. And as you say, you know, we're all part of the team. And one of the things that sickens me now is that before we've even bothered to do the science to discover what makes uh, an intersex person with androgen insensitivity syndrome uh, more intelligent than average or what makes us age more slowly and ble- you know, you'd think that people would want to do the science to discover how it is that our skin ages more slowly. That would be, you know, a billion dollar discovery <laughs> if they could work out why we age more slowly. Yeah. But before they're even bothering to do that, they're giving parents the chance to abort us as disorders of sexual development. Um, you know, because we are seen as flawed and less than. So, you know, of course, every parent wants to have a boy or a girl. We have these awful gender reveal parties so that everybody can celebrate whether it's going to be a boy or a girl and nobody wants to have a child that is intersex. What's intersex? People don't know. And that's why I'm in Hollywood working with River Gallo. And that's why I'm in Hollywood working with River Gallo, another intersex person. 
to start getting intersex stories told because until everybody in the world knows that intersex people exist and that we're normal and natural and it's completely fine to have an intersex baby, we can grow up happy and healthy and we don't need surgery in nearly all cases. Until everybody knows that, doctors are going to keep forcing the surgery upon parents when they're very vulnerable. So what could people who are maybe within the community or people who know intersex people or know what to do, what are some things that like people like Jeff and I, what can we do to help enlighten and educate other people? Well, the first thing I would say is please just educate yourselves. Mm. You know, we've all got Google now. Just go online and educate yourself what intersex is. It, there are uh, at least 10 common intersex conditions, but, uh, you know, there's a lot There's a lot you can learn and teach yourself quite quickly. There's a wonderful uh, intersex advocacy organisation called Interact, which works with a lot of uh, lovely young people. Go and have a look at their social media and um, go and have a look at our film Pony Boy, P-O-N-Y-B-O-I, and just kind of get interested in what intersex is. Uh, in terms of the community, one of the things which I really ask everybody involved in campaigning for our human rights, please add the I to LGBTQI plus because we are invisible at the moment and it's really important to us to feel that visibility and to see that visibility and to know that people know who we are. Yeah. I find that um, it's really common even with educated, intelligent liberal people they don't know what intersex is and that's nobody's fault it's been a deliberate policy to scientifically uh, erase us and to not talk about us you know it's been a conspiracy to uh, eradicate us um, and you know to call us disorders of sexual developments so to pathologize us so please everybody recognize that this has been done to us historically and help us to change this narrative as quickly as possible you know ask program makers, networks, why it is like even Netflix, if you look at, if you um, search on Netflix for intersex content, there isn't any. None. Same with Amazon. You know, there's, there's very little out there currently and we really need to get intersex yeah. stories told. Yeah. So, and we, we need famous intersex people. You know, River is probably going to be the world's first global intersex star. We're making the feature at the moment or fundraising to make the feature at the moment and uh, River is an incredibly talented actor, writer and director and we desperately need to have recognizable intersex people yeah. as part of our community. Right. We've seen this happen with the trans community, Laverne Cox, bless her heart, and the other amazing trans activists have really altered things globally yeah. so that people now, when you when they think of trans, they know two or three people at least, but right. they think, oh, like that person. They seem familiar. Yeah, yeah. they seem yeah. familiar. They seem right. like, and, and so consequently, many more trans people are coming out yeah. and embracing who they are. Uh, and it's not that suddenly trans has exploded. It's just that trans people are now feeling confident or more confident to take the risk of disclosing that they're yeah. trans. And thank goodness for that. Yeah. Right. Well, and, th and thank goodness for, for both you and River. Uh, I honestly want to thank you uh, because we've, we have so benefited from your work. Um, Anthony and I arrived in LA for the first time a year ago for, to, for this project that we were working on. And um, we just by chance uh, were able to be at uh, Fusion Shorts Night and um, for the Outfest Film Festival. And uh, it was the premiere, I believe, mm -hmm. of, for, for Pony Boy. Yeah. And um, we we were just, it. for anyone, and Pony Boy is available, we're, we're gonna have some, some links online um, to be able to be viewed. Um, this movie that you and River, um, River Gallo uh, is, was a writer uh, and- River's the writer, co-director with Shardy Clack and Joseph, an amazingly talented young um, person of color director. Um, and River's the lead actor as well. Yeah. And you as well, you executive produce. I executive produce and I brought on board the other British producers. So Stephen Fry um, is From my co-producer and Emma Thompson, uh, Academy winning uh, Emma Thompson came on board as a co-producer, which we are very grateful that she gave us her uh, support and money. She They both put their hands in their pockets and helped us make the short. The short was $75,000 and we couldn't have made it without them. Um, and now we're in the early stages of trying to raise the two million to make the feature. Mm. So that's for the future. So the short is what we, we saw at Future. Yes, and that's now on um, YouTube. So you can post a link so everybody can have a look yes. at the short. And 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 just uh, to be to be honest and transparent, um, when Anthony Anthony, if you want to speak to this a little bit yeah, more, yeah. So when Jeff and I saw the movie, we were and we knew that we were working on creating Talk Out Loud. We knew that in the tagline of what this series is, we had to include the I. 
it was so important that we included it because we know from like what you were saying earlier about with like the trans the trans community is that we have to continuously embrace are the people within the community, but then it's also, we have to give them a voice. We have to give them a place. You have to acknowledge it. You can't just leave it out because then you're left out. Then you don't, then you don't exist, you know, and then there's no way for us to, um, to showcase, you know, people like, like how the trans community has, you know, and I think it also goes back to, you know, what you said earlier, how important it is to get representation of all of us in those writing rooms, in yes. those production rooms, on screen. Because what I think, you know, what I've come to understand, especially the power of production, the power of television in movies, is that when we create those, those um, films or those shows, we can start to see other characters that are different than us. And when we start to see those characters that are different from us and we start to like those characters and we go back to that TV show every week and we want to see what happens in their lives and what's going on, it slowly breaks down barriers. Mm. It slowly creates um, uh, a way for people to connect and then say, oh, well, I know someone who's this. It happened. I mean, it's happened in our lifetime. It happened with, uh, you can point to Will and Grace for, you know, gay men, the L word for lesbians. Uh, and I feel like now there's like a handful of, you know, shows with trans characters. So it's just important that it's not left out. Right. And I think that to what you're saying as well is that trans people, intersex people have been around since forever, we, forever. forever. We, it, it, yes. it's all it's all we've all been been we've all been together the whole time yeah and um and we actually used to deal with this much better when i i how i came to changing my name and my pronouns and becoming non-binary and becoming also trans masculine is my gender now is intersex non-binary trans masculine and how i got to that place of realizing that's who i am was i wrote a play called angels are intersex mm. and in the course of writing that play i went to uh, interview rabbi michelle at the temple of israel to hear about judaism and how intersex is thought about in judaism um i went to see a muslim scholar um and found out that prior to um, Islam becoming patriarchal in the way that Christianity did as well, that it used to be that intersex people sat between the men and the women and were seen as a symbolic bridge between male and female. Wow. Um, wow. So, you know, that was an amazing revelation to hear that, you know, we'd existed in early Islam and they knew who we were. And also in Christianity, you know, there's a, a lot written in Christianity about angels and angels are intersex. Mm. There's I just just what you just said there about the, the three, the bridge. It just seems honestly like the word that I would use for my child would be holy. Like mm. what you just mm. described there is just a holy experience. Mm. Um, uh, and then, of course, sitting here in North America, Native American cultures mm -hmm. always had two spirits and two spirits. They don't fit the classifications that we have neatly, but they're a combination often of people who we would say see as trans and intersex people. But people who certainly do not fit into the male and the female box. And they they were seen as the best warriors and the best healers because they didn't fit into those boxes. The best shaman uh, was seen as intersex and trans people because they were not considered strained by the kind of blinkers of identifying as just male or female, but we're able to embody more the, the truth of, of our being as I see it and many people do, which is that we are spirits having a physical experience. And that actually the human spirit is what's much more important than a person's yeah. genitals yeah. or what people look like. Right. It's it's what is their nature, what is their character, right. what does their heart drive yeah. them to do, how do they behave, right. what do they love, who do they love, and how do they carry themselves in the world? Yeah. I mean, how how often do you, with the people you interact, it doesn't involve your genitals? I mean, right? I mean... Only with very important people at special <laughs> times. <laughs> well said. Yeah. I just feel so privileged to be sitting here with you right now um, and having this conversation. I'm kind of on the edge of my seat because um, just how important I believe your work is that you've been doing. And, and honestly, just I don't I haven't known you that long, but just like you're just such a loving, um, just amazing. Like when I leave after being around you, I feel like I'm a better version of myself. Um, and every now and then you meet somebody like that. So, so thank you for, for all you are and who you, and who you are and who you are becoming as well too. 
Thank um, you. Sharing with us. Um, well, I, I'm enormously lucky and privileged that I live in Los Angeles and I've had access to incredible healthcare through the LA LGBT Center. And I've also, as a privileged white person, had access to great therapists for my addictions. I was able to go to rehab for nine months in 2001. Uh, you know, I've got a supportive family and loving friends. So I'm very aware that I get to be this person today to be able to speak about these issues and to still be alive. I mean, there have been times where I've got very, well, I had two suicide attempts when I was 14. I've had very suicidal periods in my life. I nearly killed myself through my addiction, but I didn't. I'm still here and I'm able to speak about this because of all of that privilege. And, you know, River and I are doing this until other people can. You know, we know there are many millions of intersex people around the world and young intersex people are breaking through on social media and places like Instagram and TikTok. And they're, you know, incredible, brave young people. And they will be the people who really move this forward. But we're the ones who are able to, you know... well, I'm I'm Rivers Young still. I'm I'm 51, so I'm becoming an elder, shall we say? And I'm able to kind of um, speak in this way because of of all of that love and support that I've had up to this point. I'd like to speak to that that love that you've had. You, you got sober when you were in 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. I was 32, and I'd started drinking when I was 12, and other drugs when I was 14. So I had a 20 year addiction career by the time I rock bottomed in 2001. Was there anything in 2001 that, uh, was there a moment of grace or something that happened? My father died. Hmm. Yeah, my father died. His cancer came back for the second time. And that was the first time that I'd I'd experienced that thing of where the drugs and the alcohol don't work. Um. It doesn't matter how much you take, it doesn't take away the pain. And so I just drank and used more. And be- I'd always denied that I was an addict or an alcoholic because I didn't fit that pattern of somebody drinking and using 24-7. You know, I actually got much more successful through my addiction. You know, I was a television director in the BBC and other places. And the crazier I got and the bigger my ego got, the more people just saw that as signs of being, you know, a genius television director, an eccentric creative, et cetera, et cetera. I was very enabled in my addiction. You know, I had the chauffeur-driven cars and was able to drink in the edit suite at lunchtime and, you know, have, you know, access to drink and drugs and people not question it. But when my father died, the wheels came off and I became that 24-7 using person who couldn't finally show up at work. And for me, I was a work addict. So I always had that thing, well, as long as I'm showing up at work and making great television and people think my ideas and my television programs are great, then I can't be an addict because I've got a lovely house and I earn a lot of money and I'm functioning, but I couldn't function in my grief. And so I ended up in rehab and thank goodness I did because I would have ended up dying from my addiction if I hadn't have gone to rehab at that point. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm sorry for the loss of your father. That's uh, losing a lot. Anthony, you know, you've, you've lost a parent. I I have not. So I can't speak to that. Honestly, nothing prepares you for the loss of a parent. No, no, nothing will numb it. Even if you hate your parent, you know, as a, as a therapist, I've worked with many people who've experienced that trauma of losing a parent and it doesn't matter at what point it happens and what your relationship with them is like. It it is life changing. It is. Yeah. It's, I mean, even it's just, you're never prepared for it. You know, you just never, you can never be ready for that. And I know like with my mom, I was 21 and it's, I'm almost at a point where I've lived, you know, half of my life without her. And it's a, an interesting phenomenon because we all go through it. Um, but there's really just no way to describe what it does. I, I do know this is that when it first happened for me, I know that I uh, was able to, it felt like that massive pain was never going to go away. Mm -hmm. And someone said to me the day that we buried my mom, she said, it's never, the pain will never go away completely, but every day it's going to get easier to, to, to live with or to cope with. And I've, uh, I've always felt that that's, you know, that's definitely true. I wanted to um, just go back and ask you a question. So you said that you started using, you know, drugs and alcohol when you were twelve. Mm-hmm. What, as a twelve-year-old, what what started your use of, you know, drugs and alcohol at twelve? What caused that? Sure. Um, I think one of the reasons why I'm good at my job as an addiction coach is because I get to see addiction from lots of different perspectives. In my own story, I 
obviously have the trauma history that commonly drives addiction. It's very common when I sit and work with people or, you know, in, in the, the stories that we might read or, or hear to, to see that many people with addiction do have trauma often, you know, quite bad trauma from childhood especially. But I also have the genetic predisposition from both sides of my family. I'm half Scottish. Um, and in my family on both sides, actually the alcoholism was in my great-grandparents' generation. Both of my great-grandfathers were alcoholics. And then the family illness aspect of it took different shapes with the different family members. The, the women in the female side of my family were very codependent. Uh, and then other issues like eating disorders, shopping addiction. Um, my father was a sex addict um, and that played out in his relationship with my mother, with him constantly having affairs and cheating on her. So there being a kind of warlike environment between them as I was growing up, you know, so I, I definitely had the genetic predisposition. Um, but then I also had some of the personality traits, which I hear very commonly from people. You know, I always had that sense of feeling different to other people, of being an outsider, feeling like I was born without the rule book, um, feeling like I, I had a lot of social anxiety, but I didn't necessarily know it was social anxiety. Mm -hmm. So when I took that first drink when I was 12 years old, it was a transformative experience mm -hmm. for me. You know, it felt really amazing. Suddenly all of that fear insecurity, the sense that I was less than other people, all of that, that kind of stuff that was my kind of the world that I moved in and didn't even realize all of that stress was there. Mm. All of that vanished in, with that first drink. And I loved it. Mm. I, you know, I drank too much the first time, you know, I, I never was one of those people who would drink one drink. I never saw the point of one drink. Um, I would always drink until I got really buzzed and then drink so much that I'd be sick or, you know, bad stuff would happen. But unlike a, a normal person, a muggle, I call them, who might have a bad experience and then not go back and do that for some considerable time or may never do it again, uh, you know, if they get a DUI or something, I constantly went back to the flame for more and kind of my addiction kicked in early in terms of thinking there must be a way that I can navigate through this landscape by, you know, maybe doing some weed or, you know, finding another substance that will offset the alcohol and the negative impact of the alcohol. You know, like I loved stimulant drugs because they offset the motor coordination problems that come with alcohol. You know, I always thought there must be a sweet spot, a, a perfect concoction. You were going to figure it find. out. We're going to yeah. figure it out. And I put a lot of time and effort into finding that perfect combination yeah. So I can function in the in the world, hold down a job, and nobody will know mm. I'll be in control. What I know as an addiction professional is that all addiction is about control. It's about trying to control the feelings you don't want to feel and, and experience the feelings you do want to feel. Mm. So after you became sober mm. and your dad is now gone, you obviously were sitting here today. So you took control of those feelings. You took control of your your life what what do you feel like you had to work on in order to like within yourself what did you have to work on in order to move you uh into the life that you're living today mm. oh wow that's a big question <laughs> <laughs> i'll give you a short answer there is stuff out there that you can read like i recently read an article called the alchemy of authenticity turning your shit into gold which i'm sure you can post on your on your um social media or as a link but in short um, I went to rehab thinking I was going for four weeks and that then I'd go back to television and go back to my then girlfriend who was a celebrity uh, chef and go back to my very nice house in London. Uh, when I got to rehab, I discovered that my addiction was more serious than I realized in many ways. And I ended up being there for seven weeks. Uh, it wasn't uh, it was a very beautiful country house rehab, you know, the kind of stereotype of the, the English country house. Mm -hmm. So it was a nice place to be, but I was appalled that they made me share a room considering how expensive it was. There wasn't a massage every day, which I was expecting. And, uh, you know, it, did, it, didn't, it didn't look like I thought it was going to look like. They suggested to me that I might want to go and do secondary rehab for six months. And I said, no, that's crazy. I'm going back. To, I've got a television job to direct. I'll be fine. I went back to London and then I discovered that actually there were 
right. Seven weeks wasn't enough for me and I had to go back and do more rehab. What I did in that six months was I had to really look at my relationships. I realized that love addiction is very much part of my profile, that I'd always been in a relationship through my 20s, that people can be as addictive as drugs, unhealthy relationships can be Mm. as addictive as drugs, Mm. and putting down an unhealthy relationship can be more challenging than putting down drink and drugs. Uh, You know, relationships can be really, really addictive. Mm. So it took me six months of secondary rehab to leave that girlfriend and to recognize that I needed a real period of on my own to really look at my issues, my abandonment trauma issues from my childhood, and to start that process of looking at the medical trauma issues. But, you know, it's been a very long, slow healing process for me. I ended up not going back to television. I ended up training to become an addiction therapist. I didn't want to do that because my grandiosity wanted me to go back to television to win the BAFTA awards that I hadn't won that I thought I should have done. You know, my career started off winning an award as when I was at university and, you know, people really thought I was going to be somebody and I ended up making Saturday night entertainment shows, mm. which was not the kind of life-changing television that I thought I was going to make. But in recovery, I discovered that, that I, well, it was pointed out to me that I had an aptitude for doing therapeutic work, but I didn't want to do it because A, the money wasn't very good and B, it's not very glamorous being a therapist. So I didn't want to do that, but I followed the suggestions and doors flung open and I ended up getting trained. Uh, um, an organization paid for me to do their addiction counseling diploma. And then I discovered that I actually really love doing that work. Mm. I especially love working with family members. I've worked with many addicts themselves, but I've also worked with many families, including the Winehouse family. I did work with Amy Winehouse at the Grammys the night that she did the Grammys. Um, I'd hoped that we would get to work together and certainly people around Amy Winehouse had wanted her to work with me and I never got to work with her beyond the night of the Grammys um, when she stayed sober to pick up her five Grammys but I did end up working with the Winehouse family and that was a common thing. I, I, I love helping families to understand how addiction operates in families and how when the, the whole family needs to heal in order for the person who has the substance abuse issue or the other behavioural addiction to stand a chance of you know staying sober or in the in the world yeah mm. you talked about uh, sex addiction you talked about mm. people addiction yeah i know with some of my own work with with my own sobriety of like understanding that the thing was just a symptom like i whatever i'm looking for outside of myself for ease and comfort whether it's sugar shopping sex mm-hmm. the, the the person on my side the car the shiny object mm-hmm. then i would when i would get that object then I was always looking for the next object. Mm. All of that stuff works brilliantly, right. but for a really short amount of time. Well, and then, Even a Lamborghini will only fix yeah. you for probably about three or four yeah. days. And then, <laughs> and then the relationship then, if, if it's a relationship, if it's a person, then when you're living in fear that that's going to be taken away from you. And the, the, that article, we're gonna, we'll have a link to that, um, the article that you wrote uh, for Free the Work, uh, The Alchemy of uh, Authenticity, Turning Your Shit into Gold, which is a wonderful title. I always love titles like that, which is interesting because you talked about basically like trying to be the chemist in your own life previously with the right amount of uppers and downers to create that perfect thing. And then really there's a, there's a, a quote from there that you have, we have the power to choose how we perceive things. And realizing that the, Anthony has this thing that was like the Glenda the Good Witch, you know, you had the power the whole time, yes. you know, it was within you the whole time. Yes. And uh, and that's just to see like realizing that your, your life changed, you know, you couldn't just go back after those seven weeks and go back to what you were doing because it was a bigger, it was bigger than just the alcohol. The alcohol was just a symptom or yes. the drugs or whatever it was, you know, the main problem at the time that brought you, you know, you know to that, to that, uh, that place of, of understanding that you needed to have help. So... With with uh, with the work you do today, if if someone is, is is maybe questioning, like if they have you know some of these things have hit home, what we talked about today, what would be your advice to, to to start on their own journey? There's some really good books out there. I think it's always good to to read a book. One that springs to mind is uh, Who Says I'm an Addict by David Smallwood. That's a really good book if you think you might have an addiction because it looks at uh, food addictions and behavioural addictions and uh, substance addictions, everything. So that's that's a really good uh, starting place as a book. I would suggest uh, going to some 12-step meetings. I think they're a really good place. They're free. They're all over the world. Uh, obviously, now in corona times, they're on Zoom, so you can attend a meeting anywhere in the world to match you know your work schedule which is great and you can go to a meeting in Hawaii or London or wherever so that's really fun but you can then just kind of sit there and listen to people sharing about their experience strength and hope and see if you identify with any of the stuff that's being shared and that can be a good way to kind of educate yourself I think uh, it's a really good idea to have a 
have a therapist if you can afford one. Not everybody can, obviously, but increasingly technology is making therapy available to more people, which I think is wonderful. Yoga practice, mindfulness is really helpful uh, in terms of stopping turning. One of, the, one of the things that is really important to do is to kind of start to know yourself in terms of looking at the kind of feelings that you might be experiencing that you, that that you find difficult to stay with and then kind of starting to um, journal is a, is a really good tool. Mm. Journal what your relationship with these feelings is and where you're turning. So when you're feeling insecure or fearful or anxious or depressed or you're having self-hating thoughts, what are the things that you automatically turn to? Because often we are running on autopilot uh, and it's really important to start making those unconscious decisions explicit so that you have an awareness of what your patterns are and who you really are. One of the one of the one of the symptoms of uh, addiction no matter what it is is denial. Uh, the denial process is something that all humans have and it's really good for us you know we wouldn't as cave people we wouldn't have left the cave to go out and look for food if we'd you know not had some denial about the seriousness of the threats that we are facing in terms of you know woolly mammoths or saber-toothed tigers or whatever but when that denial process gets out of hand around addiction it can be so so powerful that somebody might have a chronic alcoholism like i'll give you an example i had a client who had bright yellow eyes because he had chronic liver failure mm. and he didn't know that he was yellow you know I asked him to stand and look in the mirror with me and I said can you see how yellow you are you actually need to go straight to hospital and you need emergency medical treatment because you're drinking yourself to death you're going to be dead in two weeks if you don't go to hospital now he couldn't see that the whites of his eyes were bright yellow mm. that's how powerful the denial process mm. can be so um you know Addiction is a progressive illness. Um, it starts off with small things, making decisions or not making decisions. You know, noticing that you're you're you 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 may be um, not wanting to do something and you're doing it. We call it powerlessness, and it's something that can creep up on us slowly over years, or it can happen very quickly. But just starting to notice that you're starting to lose that control and making yourself be honest with yourself and with other people because mm. that denial process is fueled by dishonesty. Mm. It's a common symptom that people with addiction start lying to other people and it's often the lies that family members and loved ones start to spot first. It's really important that families and loved ones don't go along with the lies uh, and that's how the codependency process works. It's really important that you stay true and that you challenge what when you, you challenge the person when you see that dishonesty because that dishonesty, uh, you know, is, that's a progressive thing that will ultimately end up with the person getting very seriously unwell before they take any action to avert the disaster that they're heading towards. Those are, those are all really things I think that everyone can understand and identify, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes we make addiction complicated. There's another thing that uh, you speak to about is and that is isolation. Yes. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. What is it about isolation? Like, you know, you talked about yoga and meditation, which are things that are quiet and sometimes done by oneself, but then isolation, that in itself is a, is a, is a different totally different thing altogether. Mm. Um, and this is one of the challenges that we've all got at the moment because we've all been on lockdown through coronavirus and, you know, having to withdraw from humanity and kind of living these isolated lives, communicating on Zoom, which is obviously an environment where we can, it's much easier to kind of hide stuff mm. when you've got, when you're just on a Zoom camera, you can position it so that only the, the neat bit of your bedroom or your office or whatever is on show and the chaos that you're surrounded by isn't visible. And, you know, you can scrub, scrub, scrub up and look okay. It's really important that if we are experiencing any kind of an addiction or any kind of mental health challenge, you know, if we notice that we're getting more depressed or more anxious, that we don't allow ourselves to withdraw into isolation. Isolation can feel so good and it can seem like a safe place, but actually it's really dangerous, especially if you are getting depressed. It's really dangerous to spend too much time alone. You know, there's a saying in AA, which is that, you know, your head can be a dangerous neighborhood that you shouldn't go in alone. And that's really true. It's, it's important that you stay connected to loved ones, stay connected to people who care about you even though that may feel like the exact opposite of what you want to do. Addiction loves isolation mm -hmm. because when we're isolated and alone, it can, you know, is literally hijacking our brains. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it is like you've got this kind of, um, uh, well, 
from a brain-based point of view, the, the addiction is based in the amygdala, which is the old reptilian area of the brain. The prefrontal cortex, the front bit of your brain, is where your personality and your consciousness is based. And so you literally are doing battle with your own brain. If it's you alone taking part in that battle, the amygdala will win because it's because it's the old reptilian area of the brain. It's where the survival instincts are. Mm. So it can literally feel like you have to have this drug, alcohol, or you have to have this food, or you have to have this behavior, be it, you know, watching pornography or gambling online or playing computer games or whatever. It can feel like your very survival depends on that. And your prefrontal cortex can't argue alone against that. But if other friends see what's going on and if you can make yourself tell on yourself, mm. you know, let people know, look, I spent the last 10 hours, you know, doing X yeah. online mm. and I feel really awful about it today and I spent too much money or, yeah. you know, I drank way too much last night again when I said I wasn't going to drink. If you can call yourself out and let other people help you, you know, it's like I say it's like, you know, with addiction, it's like you're in a boxing ring and you're in a boxing ring with a prize fighter of course if it's just you and the prize fighter they're gonna win yes but mm. if you take all your friends in that ring together you can hold him down and you can stand a chance yeah. mm. that's a really visual way for, for everyone to be able to understand that uh i've heard you say also before that a problem shared is a problem halved yeah and then so the more people i share it to the more pieces i get to give away absolutely yeah. um back to that boxing ring you were referring to there it's also really important for shame because I think in any addiction and in a lot of mental health conditions, people feel really ashamed. You know, I know for, for myself, I have a very, you know, the healthy seven is really kind of able to get up and do stuff and take on challenging things and, you know, can see a, see a big mountain and just decide to go for mm. it, you know. And when, when the depression is on me or, or when, you know, when I was in my addiction, I didn't, I didn't recognize myself and I felt ashamed that I didn't have the wherewithal to be able to battle it and that I couldn't do it on my own. And I think many people feel that, and especially at the moment with coronavirus, I think many people feel that they're not themselves, that this is an extraordinary circumstance and we don't like the person we've become in this, that we feel fearful about really simple little things mm. that we used to take for granted. Like, mm. oh my God, I didn't sanitize my hands. Does that mean I've got the virus? Now? You know, that level of stuff can be really disabling, you know, mentally, mm. can really be in fear and in the fight or flight, you know, part of ourselves, which, um, you know, is, is very damaging to the immune system and damaging to the body in general. So it's really important to connect, yeah. to breathe, yeah. Yeah, to, breathe. <laughs> <laughs> to eat those three meals a day, to get enough sleep, mm -hmm. to let ourselves watch soothing programs and listen to nice music and do mm -hmm. meditation apps and not listen to too much news, you know, detox the mind. Yeah. If you're feeling anxious, do not expose yourself to more things that are going to make you more anxious mm -hmm. and give yourself a break. You know, yeah. we're so hard yeah. on ourselves. We have such high expectations of ourselves and we're comparing ourselves constantly to the people who are the best in the world at everything, you know, because of social media and all of the tools that we have, which are such blessings in many ways. But we're now living in this this really kind of warped world where instead of comparing ourselves with the most good looking person in the village, we're comparing ourselves with the most good looking people in Hollywood. Right. Mm. And we and that, that's, you know, what I know for myself that I have to watch out. The other day I was... You know, you have like you have a couple of days where, you're, at least for myself, where I'm like, wow, I'm like, I am just on like, I'm on the beam. I'm like, like I'm just walking like, where I'm supposed to like that high bar of life, mm -hmm. like that higher level of myself, maybe that consciousness you're talking about. And then like two days later, something will happen that would happen the same thing like two days ago. Like maybe I dumped my one of my dogs barked at somebody, and I was just like, okay, come on, come on, don't do that. Versus I'm like, don't do that. Oh, just like that. Hey. Jeff, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. No, no. Stop. Stop. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. And how do you feel now, Jeff? <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. No, you shouldn't. Yeah, I shouldn't have <laughs> That's done okay. that. Shame is such, a, is such a, I mean, we could have a whole, we could have a whole hour conversation about shame. I feel oh, like. Oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah, shame, shame and fear alone, ugh. those two beauties. And, and I know like that for, for me to understand is that like shame and it's, I don't even know if there was a good form of shame, but like, to be able to understand that these instincts I have that when in their right sense to prevent me from, from repeating a mistake again. Mm -hmm. But then when it lurches on and then it becomes who I am and my being, that's when like all bets are off. And I, I've lost a sense of direction and basically like just in my brain down below in the basement, 
It's dusty, it's dirty, it's damp, and nobody wants to be there. But I want to stay down there for some reason. No one else is allowed to join me. Mm-hmm. Um, the I, I had depression as a kid, and and uh, you know, and since I've I've gotten these tools, I haven't I haven't had to be on making. And, and I'm really grateful for medication. There's been times in my life when when I've taken it, and it's been very helpful. But I'm at a place now where I've been able to not be on medication for for a while, and. Um, but I do know that I almost, it's kind of like when you, when you, if you're a kid here in the States and you start out bowling at the bowling alleys, they have these balloons that they, that they balloon up that are uh, like for kids so that your, your, your bowling ball goes down the aisle and it bounces off the gutters back and forth, back and forth. And it's almost now like with these tools that I have to keep my mind from like going in the gutter for lack of a better term, like, mm-hmm. you know, not just sexually, but just anything in the gutter. I, I have the tools to keep myself or reaching out to the people for help me when I, when I start to fall into that gutter. And, and thank God, like we all don't have a bad day all in the same day, right? <laughs> it just seems like that the power of we, that there's always one of us or two of us that's having a good day that can be there for the one who's not. That's why community is so important and having healthy community. Uh, it's really important to, to, as you have done and as I've done, and, you know, have lots of healthy people in our lives. Um, and that's, I think, one of the one of the gifts of being a queer person. Actually, is that thing about building your your own queer family and your own queer community. And community is enormously important. Which you know, talking about turning your shit into gold. Like, I, I who knew? Like the young, the closeted gay kid that you know thought this was the thing that was going to end his life has been the thing that has really been the surfboard I've been able to get up on with my community, the community that I've found LGBTQI, you know, in the world, and also with allies, and not just in that, but to really. When I really started like doing the work on myself, because I had a lot of internalized homophobia about uh, gay people specifically that I like uh, uh, didn't want to be around gay people, guilt by association, all of these things. And now it's 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 the highlight of my of, of my life, mm-hmm. being able to to work and, and be a part of and create things together with other people in the community. Jeff, to your point, being a part of the community, I guess I had a little bit of a different or a little bit of a different reference to the community uh, growing up than I guess Jeff did. My my uncle was gay. So mm. I always grew up with gay people around. His That's friends, nice. they were always around. So I, you know, my coming out was not uh, so hard. It was just kind of like, you know, everyone was like, it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a little bit of a, you know, a different, you know, a little bit of a different thing for me. Uh, talking about like laughing and, and connection because, you know, joy and, and all, of, all of those things that, that come when we get to connect with one another. You know, I know your father, he did comedy on the streets back home. <laughs> and then his, you've grown up, you've, comedy's been part of your life, no? Mm, can we talk about that a little bit? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can. Um, so yes, every year in my recovery, I have done a challenge to expand my world because my world got so small at the end of my drinking and using. So my first challenge to myself was to take a commitment at a meeting to make the teas for people. And my social anxiety was so bad just saying to somebody, would you like a cup of tea or coffee? Do you take milk? Do you take sugar? That was challenging that first year. By 2014, my challenge was to do skydiving. And I don't like small planes mm. and I don't really like parachutes. And I was attached to this huge man uh, called Bernie uh, who looked like Shrek. And we <laughs> had to jump out of this plane together. And um, I was nearly sick multiple times. Uh, I did a mini fist bump to the cameraman. I've never done a mini fist bump my whole life, but something about hurtling towards earth that turned, me, <laughs> that turned me into a very cool black man. I don't know why. And I got to the bottom and my tongue was completely white and I swore I'd never do it again. Anyway, 2015, I'm like, well, how on earth can I beat skydiving as a terrifying, you know, challenge to myself? The only thing I could think of most scary was stand-up comedy. So Mm -hmm. I did a six-week stand-up comedy course. I showed no discernible talent uh, in those six weeks, but we had to perform in front of a live audience, paying audience in a proper comedy club. Um, And I had my bits, as they're called, written on my arm or the headlines because I couldn't (laughs) remember any of it. That night in front of the audience, something happened. I came alive. I loved it. The audience enjoyed my material and enjoyed me. And my comedy tutor came up to me and said, you have the thing that I can't teach. I've been teaching 20 years. You have to do this. 
And I said, thank you very much. I'm a highly paid and respected addiction therapist. I'm not going to be spending the next five years in pubs doing open mics, but that's very kind of you. I take on board your <laughs> comment. Thank you. I then, I then moved to uh, LA to try and save my second marriage. And uh, nobody in America knows that I'm an addiction expert in Europe. People do, you know, people come up to me all the time on the streets in Britain because they've seen me on the telly being the person who speaks about addiction. So that's who I'm known as. Here, nobody knows who, or nobody knew who on earth I was. So I could go and slink into all of these open mics and work on my material. I discovered I'm the world's first out intersex stand-up comedian. Huh. And so, uh, yeah, I've been working on that since I've been here. I've played the comedy store in Los Angeles, which is That's pretty, awesome. pretty yeah. amazing. And very honored to be the first intersex person to yes. stand on the stage at the comedy store and do my bits. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. I've, uh, I've been watching a lot of stand-up comedy since I got here, learning about American comedy. It is actually quite different to British stand-up. Yeah. I've had to kind of um, really educate myself about what works here with audiences and what doesn't. And I'm enjoying pushing the American audience. <laughs> I'll give you a little example. My current, my current set ends with me doing a clitoris chant where I get the audience to do clitoris, clitoris, clitoris. You probably need to know <laughs> a lot more about me for that to make any sense whatsoever. Why on earth is Seven doing that? But it's fun. The audience... They, by the by, the time I've done my five or ten or fifteen minutes, they're with me and they join in the clitoris chant, and I think they probably hope that nobody's filmed it, but, <laughs> but, but they take part. Oh, that's awesome! I, that's yeah. I think we could all learn a little bit from from those challenges you've given yourself over the years, and and then what's been behind them. The uh, man, just I can just picture. I, and we've been to, to a few different comedy events here since we've been in LA, and. There's just something about when you're in the audience together and that what you talked about, everyone there chiming in together, chanting, having fun together. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I love about comedy. I, I, I just love the ability to talk about challenging things at time, but do it in such a way that people enjoy it. And laughter is so healing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a magical, magical experience to be able to talk. You know, all comedy is trauma plus time equals comedy. The best you know, comedy is often based on something that was traumatic once. And to take those things, which I thought I'd never tell anybody, literally I went to rehab, two people knew that I was intersex. My, 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 my mother didn't know, hardly any of my friends knew. My therapist said to me in rehab, you have to tell people that you're intersex and you have to tell them your story because this will be the thing that you drink on if you don't. So to go from nobody knowing to standing on stage uh, in front of a room of full of strangers and talking about being born a woman with balls, you know, talking about my clitoris size, talking about the effects of testosterone on my body and do it in a way that people find really funny, hopefully on a good night. Right. It's, it's very, very healing yeah. and, mm. and educational. That's yeah. it. And then, uh, and I, you know, we can just be envious that uh, you, your, your skin and your aging will all be like the old folks home and you'll still be out <laughs> climbing Runyon with, with you well, know. <laughs> yeah. my, my theory is that I'm going to get funnier and funnier the older I get. So I want to be the really eccentric sort of 80-year-old comedian in Vegas wearing incredible outfits with lots of big jewels. Oh, my God. Like uh, saying the stuff that no old person is supposed to say. Right. That's, my, that's my vision for how I'm going to spend my 80s. Sounds fabulous. <laughs> Can we meet you in Palm Springs? Can we make yeah. a reservation for <laughs> <laughs> so for, for someone who possibly had the surgery that you had as a child, I mean, what you've, we talked about some of the privileges you've had here with with uh, treatment in LA, how would someone else go about getting the help that you've gotten in, in other parts of the country? That's a very good question. Mm. <laughs> um, well, one of the things that River and I are doing at the moment um, is we are we've had two meetings with the L LA LGBT Center. There's an amazing doctor there called Dr. Carpenter, who's the lead uh, clinician, and we're having conversations about the uh, LGBT Center in Los Angeles creating an intersex clinic. And that's what we really need. We, we need intersex specific clinics where doctors, uh, psychologists, endocrinologists can all work together to provide integrated, educated care for intersex people. Unfortunately, because we are rare, mm -hmm. it's often the case that intersex people, when they go to a doctor, go to a new doctor, they end up educating the doctor what intersex is because mm -hmm. intersex is not included in the, you know, five or six year education program of most doctors. It's a real kind of passing thing. And so, 
it's really important that doctors and healthcare providers out there start educating themselves about intersex and start providing healthcare that is sensitive to the trauma we've already been through as children, but also that seeks to put right the damage that's been done to us. Um, at the moment, we don't know how many intersex people become addicts, self-harm and kill themselves. We, we know that uh, for the trans community, about 50% of trans teenagers do attempt suicide, which is a shocking and horrible statistic. And that visibility and that evidence base is starting to be heard by healthcare providers and insurance companies and is starting to create some change early stages, but it's creating some change. We need clinics like the clinic that we're working to set up with the LGBT Centre in LA. We need those clinics as soon as possible because we need to gather that evidence. I suspect that at least 50% of intersex people end up addicted, self-harming and attempting suicide. Um, and that needs to change. And when we have that evidence, we can argue much more convincingly to doctors, organisations that this surgery needs to stop. Recently, uh, an, a senator, Senator Scott Weiner uh, in California tabled legislation to ban this unnecessary cosmetic surgery on intersex babies and children in California, and it was defeated by the doctors. They lobbied against it. Um, the doctors' lobby is very powerful, very rich, and you would think that they would want to live up to the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. Unfortunately, this surgery is a big money earner because often the surgery has to be repeated multiple times. Uh, once you've operated an intersex child, they become a patient for life, often in terms of endocrine care, et cetera, et cetera. So doctors don't want to let go of this surgery and they don't want to listen to people like me. They like to say that we're the dis disaffected, uh, upset minority and that most intersex people are happy with the treatment they got. The reality is they've got no idea what happens to those patients in terms of their mental health and how many of them get lost to suicide or right. addiction, etc. Yeah. So we really need to gather the evidence and we really need to stop the surgery as soon as possible. Yeah, we, can, we can't argue with the experience of the person who is standing, who is sitting here with us today, who is in remarkable shape now athletic, living, you know, a life that could have been ended up, you know, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you and Anthony can go just, downstairs and- next my mind. Yeah, uh, there was a flexing. <laughs> we have our, our COVID gym downstairs and you two can rock out down there. Yeah, so that that's, I mean, that's why it really goes back to, it's so important for these stories to be told. One other thing which I think is really important, and I think it's so important for the trans community and the intersex community to join together. Yes. And because, you know, trans teenagers are told the exact opposite of what intersex babies and children um, receive from doctors. Trans kids are told, oh, we mustn't intervene too early. No, we can't put you on hormone blockers, mm. uh, even though you desperately don't want your body to develop along the lines that it's going to. Um, you know, they're told that they, surgery must be delayed until they can make an informed choice, et cetera, et cetera. That's the exact opposite of how doctors are treating intersex babies and children. So doctors can't have it both ways. Well said. Mm. You know? Yeah, thanks for pointing and that so, out. So by us joining together and by the rest of the community joining to support us, I think we can really change this. Yeah, yeah. such a such a, a reminder of how we're, we're better when we're all together, working yeah. together. Yeah. Um, yeah. I am excited for, uh, and I'm so glad that we've had this conversation today and we didn't wait longer that it worked out to have this conversation with you today because I feel like, just the gift of the knowledge that we've gained from you today with other people who you're talking to and interacting with. I feel like that uh, this is only just a beginning. Well, I know that River, when they're back from New Jersey, would love to come on and talk about filmmaking and creativity yeah. and their creative journey. And their, their journey is very different to mine. And it's a fascinating story too. So We've really been looking forward to I mean, We look forward to, to, to River being with us in the future. But just I'm so grateful that we've had this time to fully spend with you and get to, to talk about all of, of who you are, who you're becoming, and just some really important issues at hand and how we can all be part of this, this process. Um, how we can all be part of the solution yeah. to, bring, to bring us all closer to that. Well, it means a, a lot to me that you invited me, guys. Thank you. Yeah. And, yeah, and, no. And, 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 you know, and I just, and like Anthony mentioned it earlier, so I really uh, want to just thank you and River because, like you said, that 
you know, when we started out on this journey, we, it was, we, we talk a lot was sharing the LGBTQ, that's the by chance of, of being a, a pony boy and having that experience was... It was life-changing. It was life-changing. It was yeah. for us, it was opening our eyes to how important it is that everyone is accounted for yeah. and everyone yeah. is spoken for because that's when we start to do that, that's when we really start creating the change that we need. Yeah. Well, hearing that the film affected you like that is just so amazing. That was our intention, that it would reach people in that way. The, the story of Pony Boy is that Pony Boy is a sex worker. And why River wrote the story in that way is that because of the surgery uh, and the treatment of intersex babies and children, we often don't have any sense of a right to boundaries around our body. So many intersex children do go on to get sexually abused. We get targeted by paedophiles because they can sense that we have poor boundaries. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we do end up in sex work and in, you know, sexually exploitative, abusive relationships because our self-worth is so low. So to hear that you responded to the story in that way, thank you. Uh, and that, that you know, gives me you. more motivation to get the feature made as soon as possible. Yeah. yeah. Well, putting my executive producer hat on just for a moment, you know, I think that this is going to be the world's first intersex movie, feature movie. The script is brilliant. You know, yes. I read a lot of scripts. This is a standout script. It's Sopranos meets Euphoria. Mm. It's really fun. I think it's going to be a mainstream film, not just a niche mm-hmm. kind of film that the community will enjoy, although the community will love it. There's some amazing characters in it. Stephen Fry has signed up to be in it Stephen and Emma will be co-producing and I think that this film has the real opportunity to not just make money back but for investors to make a lot of money you know there's a real interest in this story now and uh, you know I think it could win awards if we have the right level of funding to make it as beautiful as it could be yeah and to to give it the 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 full uh, creative process that it deserves yes yeah it's something that we're we're, anthony and i would love to be hope to help be you know part of and be behind as well too so for sure yeah keep yeah keep us all informed and and we'll continue to to inform others as well too thank you guys yeah seven it has been such a pleasure to have you here and i'm really grateful the opportunity to introduce you virtually, you know, through this podcast to a lot of other people in the world. So thank you so much. Thank you. Can't express our thanks enough for you being here with us. It's really lovely to meet you, Ben. Seven's work continues to be more important than ever as we need to continue to bring awareness and understanding to the intersex community. Please make sure you visit our website under Seven's profile page to view links of Seven's work and to watch Pony Boy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk Out Loud. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate us, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on social media at Talk Out Loud Live. If you or someone you know has an inspirational story and a member of the LGBTQIA community, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. You can also get your official Talk Out Loud gear in our online store. Thanks again for listening, and remember to be true, be you, and to talk out loud.